Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I wondered if any of you have ever felt that um, things aren't fair. Now, from my experience, it's a really common phrase. People throw it around here, there and everywhere at any stage of life. Um, And even if it isn't said directly, there are themes of dissatisfaction and echoes of it's not fair everywhere we look. We hear it from toddlers when they scream and have an absolute meltdown because they can't rip the cover off the front of a magazine in a shop. (laughs) We hear it from colleagues when they're called in to cover someone who is sick again, sick. Um, We also hear it paying for our council tax when we're still driving over the same potholes. And we might hear it's not fair that younger siblings are treated different to older siblings, so on and so forth. And I recently fell for a clickbait title of a BuzzFeed article um, on Facebook, which is a culmination of quotes from children and young people who have been really spoiled. And I thought I'd share a few of my favourites this morning. First one is a seventh grade student of mine was complaining because her mum's SUV was being repaired and said, I have to ride in a normal car and I hate it. And I was like, that's ridiculous. What? Another one, I go to school in a rich area um, and there's a kid in my class who said all of the following. I forgot my homework, but I just texted my nanny and she's bringing it. What? (laughs) I got a Tesla for my birthday, but it's basically a hand-me-down, so it doesn't count. How do poor people exist? Like, just work harder. Another one, complaining to her mum that her friend got a tiger for her birthday and she only had a dog. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Who are these people? Where are they? Because this is just insane. Someone needs to knock them down a peg. (laughs) But you can see from these quotes that everything that you feel when things aren't fair is relative to where you're at in life, which in itself just isn't fair. And so how do we respond as Christians? What does it mean for us to live in a world where we see injustice everywhere that we look? And it seeps into every aspect of our lives. We can't escape it. And as most of you know, as I've mentioned, we've been working through this series, Good and Beautiful Kind. Um, good, be- good and Beautiful and Kind. Um, and it's based on a book by a guy called Rich Viodas. Um, and I can totally recommend the book if you haven't read it. It's so, so good. Um, but we began how... how um, looking at how our world and the people who live in it are really fractured and broken. Um, And a lot of the problems in our world are experienced because we don't follow those two greatest commandments that Jesus told us, um, which you can find in Matthew 22, should come up behind me. Um, It said this, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And today we're going to be finishing um, this series by reflecting on justice. And I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of justice. Um, I often find that we jump to injustice rather than justice. And, And we see injustice everywhere. We see it in poverty, racism, slavery, human trafficking, war, refugee crises... 
Um, and justice also means different things to different people. Um, for some, it might be like climate justice or social justice, which is more about restoration of how things should be. Um, but then other people, what comes to mind is punishment, punishment for crime, um, karma, what goes around comes around. Um, and so everyone sees it completely differently. Now, Tom O'Toole, some of you will know, um, he gave the title of this preach, um, and he called it, um, Justice is a Love Issue. Now, personally, I immediately felt really defensive. I was like, oh my goodness, injustice is about me not loving other people enough. And it suddenly felt really personal. It's something that is quite removed, that we can kind of talk about justice being over here, something that I can maybe talk about but don't want to get involved in. And I felt really challenged by this um, because actually to come face to face with the fact that I don't always act in ways that facilitate justice is, is really hurtful, it's very uncomfortable. Um, and I've got so much to learn, but I'm really feeling challenged to act differently after reflecting and kind of preparing this preach for you. And I'm hoping that I can share some of that with you this morning. So I'd like to draw your attention this morning to John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. And it's going to help us reflect on this idea of justice and injustice. For context... Jesus is a public figure at this point. He's regularly tested and questioned by the scribes and Pharisees. And in Jewish culture, these were the the people who had the most thorough knowledge of the law of Moses. Um, And so they had a lot of influence in their communities, and they were most often opposed to Jesus on the basis that he claimed to be the son of God. And one of their questions was the topic of adultery, um, which we see in this interaction. So if you have your Bible with you, um, please turn with me to John chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 2 to 11. It should come up on the screen behind me as well. It says this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. So to summarise, those who had the most knowledge of the law of Moses brought a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. They wanted to see how he would react. As previously, it said that he could forgive sins at this point. um, And he had done things that they considered to be against the law of Moses, um, particularly related to healing people on the Sabbath. And as they said, in the law of Moses, the parties caught in in the act of adultery should be stoned to death which is quite um, extreme. Um, As they said, um, like they were asked, well, they're basically saying to Jesus, what what are you going to do about this? Is is this something that you're going to go against as well? 
And Jesus responds to this by acting, um, asking those who accused this woman to look at their own lives and their own sin. And basically, this led to her walking away from what looked like a real life or death situation. Now, I want us to think about three points from this passage, particularly related to the phrase that I mentioned before, that justice is a love issue. So the first one is that God gave the law in love. Our passage begins with these scribes and Pharisees bringing this woman before Jesus. And in verse four, we're given an insight here into the law of Moses and what God had to say about adultery. Now, the punishment for the sin of adultery was to be stoned, which honestly just feels so harsh and extreme um, compared to our current culture now. And however, we tend to err towards the end of trivialising sin. We tend to just think about it as maybe being like, oh, white lies, things that are smaller and aren't as serious than other sins. Um, But the reality is that God can't bear sin regardless of what it is. Um, It's all the same in his eyes. And that's why Jesus had to pay for it through death. Now, I don't want to dwell for too long on this, as Tom preached last week and gave an excellent preach on on sin and us kind of reflecting on sin. So I'd really encourage you to go and listen to that if you haven't already. And so each of the guidelines in the law of Moses were given so that people who lived in a broken world could, um, could live in community with God. And these laws were given to bridge a gap between God and his people. And contrary to people who first see this law, um, they were given because God knows what's best for us. Um, He created us. He knows what makes us tick. He he knows what's slowly going to pull us apart bit by bit and it's going to be really painful. He knows what's going to bring us the most health, the most joy. And essentially, he, he knows what's best. He knows how we can live the most fulfilling life because he created us. And this also applies to the running of society. He understands what will happen if we don't follow his law. Now, this is a really terrible example, but please bear with me. But I really love to play Sims. It's the most mindless thing, and I just, I just love it. I love to be really strategic. I create a sim. I create their, their personality, their characteristics. I create them the ideal house, partner, lifestyle. If they're a clean sim, I will sign them up for uni and get them to live at home so that they don't have to deal with the other sims leaving out food that's gone off in the student accommodation, because that definitely happens. I chose their characteristics, the things that they enjoy, and so I won't give them things to do that don't line up with those. I won't strive for a really shy simp to try and succeed in a career as a comedian because honestly they get embarrassed easily and they're like no this isn't for me I have often created them like a little network of friends that they're really going to get on with Um, but often they don't actually follow what you want them to do One of the things that really gets on my wick is that they will eat whatever they want whenever they want it. (laughs) And the other day I was playing and the sim got up at three in the morning and went and grabbed a slice of cake out of the fridge. And I was like, man, if that's not real, I don't know what is. Um, (laughs) But I know that that's not good for them. I know that actually if they stop exercising the moment I click on the treadmill, that they're they're not going to be healthy. (laughs) And ultimately, all of these things are there for their um, their health and enjoyment. Now, God doesn't control us like I do my sims, and I'm immediately like, nope, nope, don't do that. Go and do this instead. Um, But he knows what is going to bring us the most joy and fulfilment. And he created us to live in a relationship with him. He knows what will help us stay safe, stay healthy, stay joyful. And he created us with our quirks, our likes, dislikes, beliefs, joys, pet peeves. 
And there are loads and loads of ways that you can look at the Bible and see God's care for his people um, and the societies that they live in. Um, I've picked one example that particularly re- like relates to the idea of justice and given equal opportunity. And it's found in Leviticus. Um, and the Israelites, um, when they were living in, um, in what we call a theocracy, which is where God was ruling over the nation, they were allocated land according to their tribes. And it, as it all belonged to God, it wasn't theirs. It was just something that they were given to take care of. And if they became the equivalent of bankrupt in our society, they could lease out the land because every 50 years they would have what was called a year of jubilee. And it would, all the land would be returned to the original tribes, the original boundaries. If a person became so poor that they couldn't afford to live, their last thing that they could do was sell themselves as a slave. And again, every 50 years in this year of Jubilee, all the slaves were freed to break that cycle of poverty. People didn't stay where they were. They had a second chance to succeed. However, when it came to sin in in the the original law that um, God gave to Moses, things were dealt with in a really different way. Um, There was forgiveness um, provided through sacrifices that they had to make, but they weren't often excused from the consequences. In biblical society, punishment was decided using that common principle that we hear about, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, doing to others what they would have done to you, and not in the positive way. And the case was the same for someone who was caught in adultery. So back to our passage, um, they were to be stoned. Now, it can be really difficult to reconcile God's views with our own. I don't know about you, but sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, oh, God, that's really extreme. I don't understand why you would do that. Um, As we can't ever fully understand how he sees our world. But if you think about the consequences of adultery, you can see why God doesn't want it. So psychologically, someone you're in a relationship with, cheats on you. I've seen this in a lot of, a lot of my friends, sadly. Um, you see a breakdown in trust. You see a sense of betrayal. You see learned behaviours that are then picked up by future generations or people that look up to them. Um, physically and on a very practical level, you sometimes end up with kids that parents don't want to take responsibility for. You see family breakdown. You see a real lack of accountability. Now, there are other provisions given by God when it comes to divorce, and so I'm not saying that this applies to everything, but you can see why God wouldn't want people to just abandon their existing partner for someone else. And we know that God is good from the other principles that he put into place, such as the guidelines around poverty that I mentioned just before. The law was given by God in love for his people. He wants the best for his people. He wants them to live um, life to the fullest. And David writes this in Psalm 86, um, in verse 5. He says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So the laws that God gave were an expression of his love and care. And there are so many examples that I could have drawn on to use this, but this is just a couple of them. So that is our first point, that ultimately God gave the law in love. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, Jesus said in Matthew 22, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Um, This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, God gave the law out of love, but he doesn't want us to obey because he's a taskmaster who wants to rule over us. He wants us to obey out of a place of love, um, love for him in response to the love that he shows for us. And so... Yeah, second point is today, the law should be obeyed in love. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen someone doing something, but they're not quite following the spirit of what's been said. 
I love this meme. It gets me every time, and I sit there having a little giggle at my computer. But he's literally found such a loophole where he's got no food, is allowed in the living room, but his iPad isn't allowed in the kitchen. And he's there lying between the door <laughs> of, to both rooms. And it's just, it's just hilarious. Kids just literally, they get right to the point and they don't, they don't hold any punches. It's crazy. Um, but he's found this loophole. And you can see that what he's doing isn't quite in the spirit of the rules that have been set. Ultimately, his parents are probably given this so that his iPad doesn't get food covered on it in the, in the kitchen um, and keeps the living room carpet safe where he's not knocking stuff over. And there are rules for a reason. I'm finding a loophole or only just following, only just towing the line um, for the wrong reasons. It isn't quite the goal of the person that made the rule in the first place. And this is what's happening with the Pharisees in this. We see them questioning Jesus on this woman who was caught in the act of adultery in verse 4. And ultimately, I don't know the motives of the Pharisees, I really don't, but it could have had something to do with lording it over other people. They were, had a higher social status. Perhaps they were doing this just to... I don't know, to reassure the, the people that actually they were in the right position. And if they weren't, I think they were just following these, the law that God had given out of, um, outside of the spirit in which it was given. So um, there are a few things that are really helpful to know when we're thinking about this particular event. So in order to pursue the equivalent of a court case, um, to give fair consequences for people's actions, there had to be at least two witnesses. Okay, You can find this in Deuteronomy 19. Um, chances are, I'm not saying that this is the truth, but that this was a setup. Adultery was often not caught because of the private and intimate nature of the sin. And in order to, to like condemn her publicly, there had to be at least two witnesses. <laughs> Do with that information what you may, but it leads me to think that in order to have at least two witnesses in the room where it happened, there was a certain amount of planning that had to happen in order for them to accuse her in the first place. Not only have they tried to catch um, this person, they've, they have brought her forward um, publicly. It's a huge mockery of her. There was no quiet taken aside and deciding there. This was a really public idea, ordeal and an affair in what was a really shame-based um, culture. It would have brought shame upon both families involved. It would have been something that they were really ostracised for. It's also said that both parties in the act of adultery should be stoned. If you look at um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's a lot of laws around this. Um, it was most likely going to be a man that was the other person. Okay? And I don't say that just um, for the sake of um, the story, but because um, the way that the Bible was, was written, um, essentially, an act of adultery was something that a woman did. Okay, it was something that had to take place with a man. Now, it wasn't clear whether he was excused because of the patriarchal nature of the society, whether he escaped before um, they were taken. Um, but either way, he, sh he should be there receiving that punishment as well. But he is nowhere to be seen. And in addition, the law um, almost seems a little bit unbalanced in the first place. So it isn't wrong for a man to sleep with an unmarried woman but it was wrong for a, for a woman to be in that same relationship. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of complexity here that you don't see just from reading the passage. And it all seems quite unjust, quite unfair. And at this point, they're trying to catch Jesus out. 
Now, I didn't know this. I found this out when I was preparing this. Um, But if Jesus agrees with them, he is likely to be caught by the Romans, as at the time, they were the only ones who were able to execute capital punishment. So if someone deserved the penalty of death, then the Romans were the only people who were able to do that. And so anyone who did that was outside of the law. So if Jesus does that, he has a charge against him. If he disagrees, he's charged because he's undermining the law of Moses. And it's a no-win situation for everyone involved, the woman, for Jesus. There's so many motives under the surface of everything that is happening here. And so they've lost the spirit of the law that God's given. God gave this law out of love to help people live life to the full. And that's just not happening here. They're twisting and there's a lot of motives that are kind of under the surface. So moving on to the next bit, Jesus responds with both love and truth. Now, I've really been wondering about Jesus' perspective at this point. This woman has been dragged into the middle of a crowd of people, is probably deeply hurt and ashamed. She's probably surrounded by people that she knows. The modern rom-com will probably picture her wrapped up in a bed sheet, having having had time to get dressed, okay? I imagine Jesus looked at her with just like compassion, At this point, he kneels down and he writes in the ground. (laughs) A lot of people have a lot of theories on why this was, um, whether it's to buy time, to distract, all these different things. However, there's only two mentions of the finger of God writing something in the Bible, which I found really interesting. And it's this verse, and in Exodus 31, where it refers to the tablets given to Moses with the Ten Commandments on, and it says that it was written by the finger of God. And I do wonder whether it was just a subtle pointer to Jesus' authority as the Son of God. But that's just a personal thought theory that I came across. And so he's writing. He's knelt down. He's writing on the floor. And they're questioning him and questioning him. And he's still just writing. And then he responds with this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, he doesn't say she's innocent. She's without guilt. He doesn't say that they're wrong for trying to, um, to find punishment for her actions as it's wrong. Um, but he does point to their motives behind bringing her to him. And he notes the distinct lack of love they have for a member of their own society. And so he says this, this drops this bombshell and then just goes back to writing on the ground. <laughs> oh, it's just such a mic drop moment. It's just, it's great. Um, and so basically the people who are accusing this woman just drift away one by one oldest first which is a really interesting point to make and I do wonder whether they were just probably slightly wiser see that Jesus has stumped them and they're like okay we're going now and Jesus gets up after writing on the ground and he says woman where are they has no one condemned you and she said no one lord and Jesus said neither do I condemn you go and from now on sin no more he sees her he addresses her He could have tried to ignore her, not wanting to get involved, um, not being seen to associate with sin, but he didn't. He loves that woman without looking over the truth of what she's done. And he acknowledges that she has sinned by saying, go and sin no more. So he doesn't brush over the truth of sin, but he does respond in love. And he invites her to be restored to the way that God invited her to live with the law in the first place. And so what can we learn from all of this? Justice is part of God's character. It isn't something that he does. It's something that he is. 
To love God, we have to love justice. As part of our worship and appreciation of all that God is, um, he asks us to prioritise justice, to seek justice, and in doing so, love others as we love ourselves. There isn't a way around that. Professor Cornel West put it like this, justice is just what love looks like in public. Isaiah 58 is one example of how God asks us to pursue justice, and he's talking about its importance in relation to fasting. So fasting was seen as something that was quite religious, something that was maybe more holy. Um, And yeah, ultimately, um, in this passage, um, the nation of Israel is saying to God, why haven't you seen our fasting? We've been fasting, we've been honouring you, why haven't you seen it? And God responds, and he says this in verses 6 to 7, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now they say faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. And the same goes for justice. We can't stand by if we truly love God and who he is. We are called to imitate Jesus and he ultimately stared injustice dead in the face in almost all of his interactions. Fleming Rutledge puts it simply by saying that justice is God's power to make right what's been wrong. It's not punishment, but it is to bring restoration. And Because of Jesus' death, part of making things right now isn't punishment. It was punishment. There was a consequence for sin because sin is serious. But because of Jesus' death, it's now more about restoration. It's putting things back the way that they were meant to be. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have to face the consequences, but it does mean that we're not condemned before God. And we're called to show that same desire for justice in our social settings. And look forward to that day of restoration when one day we're in heaven and this, all this injustice is dead and gone. So how? How do we live this out? Um, I'd like to invite the band to come back up. Um, but I have three points for us to take away for our own thoughts and reflections. The first one is be conscious of our society being based on a meritocracy. Now, that just means that people are seen as successful based on their own actions. Um, And so, yeah, people are praised for taking responsibility for where they are. And those who don't succeed are accused of not taking responsibility for themselves and their lives and their desire to change. And chances are, if you're a successful person, you haven't got there on your own. Chances are that others have given you a sense of security. Maybe you've come from a good family background. Maybe you've come from a solid socioeconomic status. But none of our actions are only a result of our own. And so I want you to remind yourself of this when we see these people in society who are in seriously disadvantaged positions. Better still, do what you can to help. Because honestly, you probably have more resources to do that than you think you do. And so that could be directly, it could be like directly supporting someone who is really struggling, or it could be to support a charity like we're doing with Give Big, we're kind of hoping to provide some financial aid to people who are literally on the front lines doing this. However, I want us to be careful that it's not 
we don't want to just use give, giving to a charity or um, to people who work with marginalised groups as an excuse to avoid the discomfort from doing it ourselves. Okay, so let's not use that as an excuse, but that is definitely a way that we can support what's happening. The second thing is naming problems isn't challenging injustice and it isn't a solution. Um, I know that recently I've been having conversations where people have said, oh, I'm having to choose between heating and food. Now, I know that. I can have a conversation about it. I can post about it on social media. But often what I'm most guilty of not doing is actually remembering to buy something for our food bank or giving a financial gift to a, a charity who's combating these problems or offering to make a meal for someone that I know is struggling. Now, if we're happy to name problems, let's do what we can to help as well. Like, it's a really important thing. It's just staying accountable. And let's make sure that we do that as a church. Let's not let the conversation end here. Finally, look at others with love, as all these things are covered in Jesus telling us to love our neighbour as ourselves. There's nothing more uncomfortable than being faced with the bleak reality of injustice, but people aren't invisible until we refuse to look. <laughs> it's deeply uncomfortable to walk through the city centre, see homeless people sleeping rough. It's uncomfortable to think about what they do with the change that you give to them. However, ignoring them doesn't make anything go away. Stop, acknowledge their presence, have a conversation if you can. I've been trying to do this more often, particularly chatting to a man who is often around our local park. And I'm going to be honest... I avoided him for months because I just couldn't bear having that conversation knowing that I had so much more than he did. Um, and so one day, thankfully, my dog, Cooper, um, he got rid of that for me because he went up and tried to steal the bit of breakfast that this man was having. And I was like, <laughs> why? Why are you doing this to me? But he's a really nice guy. He's a real gentleman. And he actually just really loves a good chat. And I didn't realise this because I avoided him for months because of my own discomfort. And now he's, now, now he's someone that I always say good morning to. And when it feels appropriate, I'll say, is there anything that you need today? And often he just says no. But I really appreciate just having a conversation. Um, and as others have mentioned in the earlier preachers in this series, we need to personalise that rather, personalise people rather than depersonalise. Each person is lovely, lovingly created and a sacred child for our creator. Now, this isn't a small problem. It's so, so easy to be overwhelmed. Um, but we're not called to fix it. Ultimately, it won't be fixed in this life. However, God asks us to be faithful with what we have. In Good and Beautiful and Kind, Rich Fiodas says, God doesn't say, well done, good, and high-capacity, influential, and successful servant. <laughs> he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's be faithful in those small things that we can do and trust that God can use our actions in our wider society.